I want to consider for a few minutes the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 19, verse 29. Before we read those words, let's look at the context a little bit. In the context, a rich young ruler had come to Jesus and had asked him, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' first answer to the rich young ruler was, Keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler's response to Jesus was, I've done that since my childhood, but I'm still lacking something. What is it that I lack? And so Jesus said to him, and he said this because he understood the young man's love for his riches, Go sell everything that you have and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler then went away sorrowful because of his love for his riches. He was not willing to give up his riches. At least at that point, he was not willing to give up his riches for the sake of Jesus Christ. Seeing that the man had gone away, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said to them, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus meant, of course, that riches are a great obstacle to being his disciples. But I think we may expand that and we may say that all earthly loves can be great obstacles to our following Christ. And I think the disciples understood that because their question to Jesus was, who then can be saved? Not everyone in the world loves riches, but everyone in the world loves something earthly. And so the disciples' question is, well, we all have this problem in one form or another. Who then can be saved? And Jesus' answer was, it's impossible with men. No man can save himself or anyone else from these earthly loves. But all things are possible with God. God can make us willing to give up riches and any earthly thing for his sake. Then Peter, in a very typical fashion for him, said to the Lord, Well, Lord, we've given up an awful lot, haven't we? What will we have then? What kind of reward will be ours because of what we've given up? And Jesus answered him, first of all, regarding himself and the other apostles, saying in verse 28 to him, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But then he generalizes from that statement. In verse 28, he's talking just to the 12 apostles. But in verse 29, he's talking to all his followers. And he says about all his followers, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So those are the words that we want to consider now. And the first question that I think we should ask about those words is what does Jesus mean when he says, everyone who has left houses or brothers and so on? What, does the, what do those words 
has left mean? Now, I think there are three things that we can say about those words. First, sometimes when our Lord calls us to discipleship, he requires that we physically leave certain things that belong to this earthly life. I think that's what Peter had in mind when he said to Jesus, we have left many things. What will we have? When Jesus called Peter and his brother Andrew, we read in Matthew 4, verses 18 to 22, that they left their nets. That is, they left their work, their ordinary work, to follow Jesus. And this meant, of course, leaving their means of earthly support. And when he called James and John, just a little bit later, we read again, they left their boat and their father. They too gave up their work and they gave up their family relationship with their father. That is, they were now somewhat uh, more distant in their relationship with their father. They could not be with him in the same way that they had been with him before. Paul gave up his position among the Pharisees and his expected advancement among them when the Lord called him to his service. And he says of that loss in Philippians 3, verses 3 to 7, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. So, to put it in a more modern terms, if we're doing work that is in itself evil, that is, work that God would not approve of, like voluntary sex work, for example. Or if we are unequally yoked with unbelievers in friendship or in any enterprise. Or if we find that we cannot withstand the temptations associated with certain things or certain places, or certain persons, we may be required to leave them. When God commands us to flee both from idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, and from sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, I think part of what he means is take yourself out of those settings in which you may be tempted to commit those sins. That is, Physically remove yourself. So this physical kind of leaving is sometimes a cost of discipleship. But I think that that kind of physical leaving is relatively rare. Usually being a follower of Christ means that we become even more diligent in fulfilling the obligations we have to the people around us and to the things that God has put into our care. A wife or a husband whom the Lord has called will love his or her spouse more faithfully after his calling than before his calling. Christians should be more, not less, diligent about their work than their unbelieving counterparts. And we receive with thankfulness the good earthly gifts that God gives us. 
Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5, and I think it's worthwhile our reading those verses now. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods. Notice how they're uh, commanding the leaving of earthly things, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. This is true of all earthly gifts that God gives then. We should receive them with thanksgiving. We should not reject them. We should not automatically think that we have to leave them in a physical sense. And so when Jesus says about his disciples, if anyone has left any of these things for my sake, I think he means more than simply a physical separation from these things. I think what he's talking about is really more a spiritual or a mental leaving than a physical leaving. If we look at Luke 14, verses 26 and 27, I think we will see the second thing that our Lord requires of us when we become his disciples, the second kind of leaving that is necessary. If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now we could talk for a long time, I think, about what Jesus means by that word hate. And it's, it's a subject that's worth pursuing also. But let's confine ourselves for now just to this one point, that what the Lord is saying here is that he demands our primary loyalty. We may not love anything more than we love him. All other loves must be brought into the service of his love. We must seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness. We must, with the Apostle Paul, count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a cost of discipleship for all of us. We must subject all loves to our love for God in Christ. The first and great commandment is love God with all your heart. The second is, and that it's second means it's not equal to the first, love your neighbor. The second is do not love your neighbor in such a way that it displaces love for God. Leaving things for Christ's sake is giving them up as the first objects of our love. The third thing, then, that our Lord requires of us is that we acknowledge that everything we have is ours only in a limited sense. We can't save anything. This is mine alone. This is my husband, my child, my house, my father, my wife, my life, my house, whatever it may be, whatever you have is God's. 
The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Psalm 24, verse 1. Nothing is yours, absolutely. Therefore, and this is the hard part of this, God has the right at any time to take it away. We may not say to him, it's not fair. Whatever it is, it is his. He has the right to do with it as he pleases. To be angry with him is really to say, you had no right. That was mine. So that's the third cost of discipleship, that we be ready to say with Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job 1 verse 21. Now that's a very hard thing to accept. But if we're willing, I think we can also see that there are some things that God teaches us about our earthly possessions and about our earthly relationships that diminish the seeming severity of what we have just been saying. The first fact that we should consider is this. Temporary possession is the nature of all things earthly. Sometime, somewhere, we always lose our earthly things. And that's simply because earthly life and earthly possessions don't last. We may hang on to them desperately with all the passion and devotion of which we're capable. But if we don't lose them while we live, we're we're surely going to lose them when we die. When he dies, Psalm 49 verse 17 says, He shall carry nothing away. Now, of course, at the same time, we have to recognize that to lose something now rather than later can be very painful. It's easier to lose a parent who has suffered many years from dementia than it is to lose a child or a father and friend still in his strength. Perhaps, in fact, some of these earthly losses are impossible fully to recover from while we remain in this world. But we are going to suffer the loss of all earthly things. Moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. And that's why he urges us to seek the things which are above. So that's the first fact we should consider in connection with this leaving. The second fact we should consider is this, that God is wise and good in all that he does. He's never arbitrarily severe, never cruel, never spiteful. He does what he does because it's necessary to the fulfillment of his purposes. Now, that in itself creates a problem for us, of course, and it creates a problem because we don't understand his purposes. We see, as it were, only the backside of the intricately woven tapestry of his work. 
And so it appears to us, looking at it from our limited perspective, that there are all kinds of loose ends in his work, that there are even mistakes in what he's done, that there is, if a discernible pattern, only a very dimly discernible pattern in what he's done. You can't see things clearly from the back of the tapestry. You have to look at the front, and we can't see the front. And so we can't see the intricately woven uh, purposes of God of this life with that life, or even of my own life with the lives of others. We can't see how prosperity and adversity work together in our lives according to the purposes of God to accomplish what he has ordained from eternity any connection with all of his other works throughout all of history. We look at it, in other words, and we see only a little bit of what he is doing, a very little bit. It's like trying to discern the purposes of God, or it's like a layman trying to discern and understand the full-scale architectural drawings for a skyscraper when he has only one page of those drawings, and that not the first page. It wouldn't make sense to him at all. But every line and every word on the page he has is important, and its importance has has to do not just with the, the page in front of him, but its importance has to do with every other page in the whole of the plan. That's what we are like in relation to God's purposes. Understanding that, understanding that we have such a limited knowledge of God's purposes takes humility and faith. The best we can say about God's purposes then is, God, you know what you are doing. I don't. Would you perhaps say to God, make me understand. Show me why. Show me why you've done this. Show me why I have to suffer this pain and loss. Show me why I have to leave all things. And I'll be okay. But we're not capable of understanding. It might take eternity for us to see just how the pulling of one little thread in the tapestry distorts the whole pattern. Or changing one small thing in the drawing endangers the integrity of the building. His ways are far above our ways. He says it himself in Isaiah 55, verse 9. We can't hope to understand everything that he purposes and all the intricate interweavings of his purposes with all the other uh, things and all the other works that he does. So those are the three things I think that we should keep in mind about this whole matter of leaving earthly things. First, that we sometimes leave, physically leave things, 
Secondly, that we subject every earthly love to the love of Christ. And thirdly, that we acknowledge that we do not understand the purposes of God. Now, I'm, I'm saying this, of course, to those, at least some, who have suffered loss and who might well be able to say to me, what do you understand about these things? You don't know what I've gone through. And that may well be true. That I have not suffered like you have suffered. But your Lord Jesus Christ has suffered. He has been tempted in all points as you are. And he has left all earthly things for your sake. But note too that leaving all earthly things and willingly laying down his life, he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of God. And that's really the comfort that he gives us here in Matthew 19, verse 29. Above all other comforts and above all other explanations of what's going on here in the world, we have this, that our Lord promises that whatever he takes away from us for his sake or whatever we lose for his sake, he will restore a hundredfold. If not here, then in the life to come. And I think that's why the story of Job ends so happily. With Job's wealth and his family abundantly restored to him. In that ending of the story of Job, the Lord is teaching us that in the heavenly kingdom, there are greater treasures than we have here. And that losing these earthly things means, for the sake of Christ, means that all things will be ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. He will wipe away every tear. He will bind up every wound. He will comfort every sorrow. And he will give to you an abundance of life and good things forever. Things that cannot be destroyed. Things that are permanent, not temporary like the things of this world. That's his promise to us. Lose earthly things. Lose them for my sake. I'll give them all back. And I'll give much more besides. May God bless you with his word.